Imagine you're a homicide detective working on the biggest case of your career when, out of the blue, someone hands you an envelope. There's no return address on it, and you weren't expecting mail, but you open it anyway. Inside is this postcard, addressed with letters cut out from a magazine. It's from the man you've been trying to catch for a while now. You don't know his name or what he looks like. For all you know, he handed you the envelope. But you know it's him because there's something else inside too. Wrapped in tissue paper is a piece of human breast tissue from his latest victim. He's toying with you, essentially saying, guess what, you'll never catch me. This is the story of the monster of Florence, Italy's most famous and gruesome serial killer. I'm Ashley Flowers, and this is International Infamy, a Spotify original from ParkCast. I'm taking you around the world to look at 15 culture-defining crimes from 15 different countries. Today, we're stopping in one of Italy's oldest cities to talk about the monster of Florence, one of the grisliest serial killers ever to live. This story is filled with so many twists and turns, it'll make your head spin. 16 people dead, a 40-plus-year manhunt, 100,000 suspects interviewed. I could easily spend a season pouring over the ins and outs, but I'm going to try to cover it all in one episode. All of that is coming up. Wish me luck. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. Being young and in love can be hard, especially when you're still living under your parents' roof and having to play by their rules. I mean, I love you, mom and dad, but it's true. In Italy, it's even more complicated. Teenage frustrations play out for even longer because kids are expected to live with their parents until they're married, 
It's tradition, one that's given birth to an age-old Italian pastime, having sex in cars. In June 1981, Giovanni Foggi and Carmela Denuccio parked on a secluded hill underneath a cypress tree next to an olive grove and a wine vineyard. Carmela's brand new engagement ring glistens in the dim light of the new moon. After pressing play on a cassette tape, John Lennon's Imagine drifts out the speakers and into the night. A neighbor nearby hears the music in the distance, but the song suddenly cuts out about halfway through for reasons nobody knows, until the following morning, when an off-duty policeman stumbles across Giovanni and Carmela's dead bodies. Giovanni's still sitting in the driver's seat, his head resting against the shattered glass where a bullet passed through the window into his skull. Carmela's lying on her back a ways away from the car. After being shot and stabbed, the killer dragged her body into the open. Then, for some reason, they posed her corpse with a gold necklace draped between her lips, and her pubic area is entirely missing. The killer cut it out with a knife and left the scene with it. Now, the first reporter to arrive at the scene is Mario Spezzi. He works for one of the oldest papers in Italy, La Nazione. At first, some cop tries to convince Spezzi the girl's mutilation was caused by a wild animal feasting on it overnight. But he quickly learns the real story. See, Spetsy's always the guy with the inside scoop, and thanks to some well-placed informants, Spetsy learns two critical pieces of information. First, the killer's gun was a 22 caliber pistol with a malfunctioning firing pin that left a distinctive mark on the bullet casings after being shot. And second, the knife used had some kind of notch or tooth in the blade. The medical examiner says it could be a scuba knife, but he's not positive. Now, Spetsy thinks the crime is definitely a front-page news story, but his boss isn't so sure. Unlike in America, sensationalism isn't so ingrained in the Italian culture. Boss man's worry that the crimes may be a little too disturbing to plaster on the front page, and fair. But then this young, eager reporter pipes up about another double homicide that happened a while back. He's like, you know, it might be my imagination, but I think it was kind of similar. So they hustle to the archives and dig up the story. And here's what they learn. In September 1974, this is six years earlier, teenage sweethearts Pasquale Gentilicore and Stefania Pettini started their night at a local discotheque and ended their night dead, shot by a 22 caliber pistol, after parking in the hills of Florence. Officials found Stefania's body away from the car. She was posed with an elaborate design on her chest and pubic area, created from 97 stab wounds. The killer had also penetrated her corpse with a grapevine stalk. The similarities are striking. Young couple, sex in a car, shot and stabbed, 22 caliber pistol, mutilation of female sex organs. But one word stands out above all the rest. Unsolved. Officials never caught the person responsible. 
And just like that, Spetsy's story gets a new angle. Florence may have a serial killer. Now, Florence is an incredibly old city with a rich cultural past. Founded by Julius Caesar, it became the birthplace of the Renaissance and home to some of the greatest minds and artists in history. Dante, Botticelli, Machiavelli, Da Vinci. It oozes beauty, and Florentines have a lot of pride in their city. Sure, a lot of blood was spilled in the process of building it, but as far as the people living there are concerned, that's in the past. So when Spetsy's story reaches the masses, the news sends the city into a frenzy. And it's not just the public who are shocked. The police hadn't even considered the connection to the 1974 homicides yet. They're reading papers like, huh, wish we thought of that. Incompetent police work? Uh, It's a running theme in the Monster of Florence case. But luckily, some cop did their job six years ago because the police still have the bullet casing from that 1974 crime scene. And a forensics analysis confirms Spetsy's theory. The casings have the same distinctive marks left by the same defective firing pin. It's as good as a fingerprint. Now, obviously, investigators want to catch the killer as soon as possible. So they start looking for potential witnesses, which you think would be difficult. Who would be hanging around some random olive grove in the middle of the night? Well, remember those Italian traditions, living with parents and having premarital sex in cars? There's actually more layers to it than that. See, some parking spots are considered better than others. Beautiful, private, no one will bother you. And these spots attract unwanted attention from loosely organized gangs of voyeurs. Yeah, you heard that correctly. These voyeurs fight over the cars that unwittingly put on the best shows. They even bring microphones, tape recorders, and night vision cameras to record it for later viewing. And behind the gangs of peeping toms is another layer of sleaze. People in bushes photographing the voyeurs to use as leverage for extortion. It's human depravity at its finest. But for probably the first time ever, it's useful. Once the police start asking around, they find a bunch of scared people willing to talk about what they saw that night. And one name keeps popping up. Enzo Spalletti. Spalletti's an ambulance driver, and it's basically an open secret that he frequents the area where Giovanni and Carmela were murdered. Even his wife admits it. I mean, she's not happy about it, but she admits it. Now, at first, the cops don't seriously consider Spalletti as a suspect. He's more of a skeevy uncle, not so much a cold-blooded killer. But after the police catch him lying about his alibi, Enzo becomes suspect number one. And then an eyewitness places Spalletti about a stone's throw away from the crime around the time of the murders. The police cuff him, a judge convicts, and Spalletti is locked away. It's the first time someone is imprisoned as the monster of Florence. But it's not the last. Mario Spezzi has obviously been following the case closely, and he's pretty sure officials got the wrong guy. And ultimately, he's proven right when, a few months later, another young couple is slaughtered in their car while having sex. Stefano Baldi and Susanna Camby, 
two 20-somethings engaged to be married, both shot and stabbed. Like Carmela, Susanna's body was dragged away from the car and her sex organs were cut out. It's a terrible tragedy, but Enzo Spalletti's pretty happy about it because he's released from prison. He couldn't have done it from jail, and the bullet casings found at the crime scene confirm that this was the same guy who killed the other couples, the real monster. The bad news is, it looks like he's getting bolder, more methodical. But the good news? The police receive a potential lead. On the night of Susanna and Stefano's murders, a couple was driving through the area and passed a man sitting in a red car at a bottleneck in the road. As they inched past, they clearly saw the man's face racked with fear and anxiety. They can't know for sure, but it could have been the monster. They described the guy to a forensic team who created a sketch of a stern man with rough features, big eyes, a hooked nose, and a thin, tightly wound mouth. But officials don't release the image to the public. They need more information, which unfortunately means they need the killer to strike again. And he does, eight months later. In June 1982, after getting ice cream with friends, Paolo Minardi convinces his fiancée, Antonella Migliorini, to take a ride into the countryside. Understandably, she's a bit concerned. There's a maniacal serial killer at large preying on young couples. But Paolo's persuasion works. Night falls under another new moon, and they park on a dead-end lane surrounded by tall foliage. Once they finish having sex, Antonella crawls into the back seat to dress, and Paolo finds himself staring at the figure of a man outside their car. Freaking out, he puts the car in reverse to get away, but the monster's quick on the draw and shoots Paolo in the left shoulder. Still alive and full of adrenaline, Paolo backs the car out of the dead-end lane and across the main road that runs perpendicular to it. But he backs up a bit too far, and the rear tire gets stuck in a ditch. Paolo revs the engine, trying to escape, but the monster of Florence steps into the car's beams and shoots out both headlights with two well-placed bullets. Under the cover of darkness, the monster approaches the car and fires two more shots, one into Paolo's skull and the other into Antonella's. He tosses Paolo from the car, gets in the driver's seat, thinking that he's going to escape. But there's no time. He's out in the open on a busy Saturday night. So he gives up and runs away without mutilating Antonella's body. And in his rush, he leaves behind a potential clue. Paolo Minardi is still breathing. Coming up, mass hysteria in Florence. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Let's get back to the story. 
In June 1982, Paolo Minardi becomes the first victim to survive an encounter with the monster of Florence. But after being taken to the hospital, he dies a few hours later before ever regaining consciousness. Any hope of identifying the killer dies with him. One prosecutor decides it would be a good idea to control the narrative that reaches the public. She doesn't want the monster thinking he got off easy again. So she contacts a bunch of journalists, including Mario Spezzi, and asks them to lie. She tells them to say Paolo made it to the hospital alive and that he provided the police with useful information. She wants to scare the monster into making a mistake. The reporters get to work crafting their stories. Meanwhile, the body counts now at eight. And out of desperation, investigators decide to release that sketch from earlier. And it doesn't pan out well. By this point, everyone in Italy is a self-proclaimed expert on the Monster of Florence case. Nobody is shy about pointing fingers, mostly at priests, along with surgeons and OBGYNs, for reasons you can probably infer. And this is before the sketch gets released. After the police release the drawing, the hysteria reaches dangerous new levels. As a reminder, it's just a picture of a guy who looked nervous in a red car near where two murders occurred. Like, it wouldn't be admissible in any courtroom in the world. But that doesn't stop the public from fixating on his image. And you've seen what these kinds of sketches look like. They're pretty crude and ambiguous. So a ton of people in the metropolitan Florence area could pass for this guy in the drawing. And before long, they all become social pariahs. As in, crowds of people stand outside their businesses encouraging boycotts. One pizza parlor owner gets harassed so badly that he ends up taking his own life. And those, those are just the public reactions. Local reporters and investigators are flooded with hundreds of tips about other possible suspects, many of which are fueled by personal grudges. The amount of calls and letters is so overwhelming, it actually inhibits the investigation. Nobody knows where to start. But Mario Spezzi zeroes in on one tip in particular. It's a tattered old newspaper clipping from 14 years earlier, six years before what investigators thought was the monster's first murders. Written in the margins of the clippings is a message that breaks the case wide open again. Take another look at this crime. And once again, Spetsy finds himself traveling back in time to examine an old case. In August 1968, Barbara Locci and Antonio Lobianco were shot and killed while having sex in a car in the hills outside of Florence. Sounds familiar. Well, the coincidences don't end there. The killer used the same 22 caliber pistol with the same broken firing pin as all the other murders. But here's the twist. The 1968 investigation didn't go unsolved. Barbara Locci's husband, Stefano Mele, confessed to the murders. And a forensics test showed that Stefano had fired the pistol that killed Barbara and Antonio. As in, the monster's gun. He said he tossed the pistol in a nearby irrigation ditch afterward. The police looked for the gun, but never found it. Stefano was convicted and sentenced to 14 years in prison. 
a lenient sentence because the court ruled that Stefano was intellectually disabled. After six years, he was released on parole, and by 1982, he's living in a halfway house for ex-convicts run by priests and nuns. Now, Spetsy's reading about this, and he doesn't know what to think. Like, Stefano confessed to a crime that almost perfectly matched the monster's M.O., in which he used the monster's gun. And yet, he can't be the monster. He was in prison during the 1974 murders and under supervision for the rest. But Spetsy is convinced that Stefano is the key to solving the case. What hasn't he told the police? What really happened to the gun? So he visits the halfway house for an interview. When Spetsy meets Stefano face-to-face, he's almost disappointed. He doesn't seem like a killer. He's thin enough that a gust of wind could knock him over, and he's, he's nervous. When Spetsy brings up the 1968 murders, Stefano launches into vague rants that don't really add up. The interview is basically a giant waste of time until Stefano makes a statement that causes the hairs on Spetsy's neck to stand on end. He says, they need to figure out where that pistol is. Otherwise, there will be more murders. They will continue. The way the words roll off Stefano's tongue makes Spetsy feel like, one, Stefano definitely knows the monster, and two, it might be monsters, plural. This changes everything. Like I said, Stefano shot the gun that killed his wife, but that doesn't mean that he was the only person there that night. And it turns out the police knew he wasn't. Unlike all the other murders, the 1968 case had an eyewitness, Barbara and Stefano's six-year-old son, Natalino. The police had obviously already interviewed Natalino about what happened on the night of the murders. He told them that he was asleep in the backseat of the car and woke up to gunshots and his father standing outside holding a gun. That's pretty damning evidence for Stefano, if that was the only version of events Natalino told. But it wasn't, not even close. That was just the version the cops ran with. Natalino gave so many varying accounts that at one point, a cop got so frustrated that he threatened the kid, saying, if you don't tell me the truth, I'll take you back to your dead mother. Which is not the kind of thing you say to a six-year-old who's experienced earth-shattering trauma. Maybe if the cops were a little kinder, they would have found Natalino more cooperative. And maybe they wouldn't have been so quick to dismiss the version of Natalino's story where he mentioned a group of shadowy men outside of the car. He even provided some of their names, like Salvatore and Francesco Vinci. Coming up, we'll get to know the Vinci brothers. Let's get back to the story. In 1968, Italian detectives were in such a hurry to put Stefano Mele behind bars for a double homicide that they ignored two other suspects, Salvatore and Francesco Vinci. Now, who are the Vincis? Well, in short, they're two brothers who were friendly with Stefano and Barbara Mele. But to really understand their relevance to the Monster of Florence case, it's helpful to get a little backstory. There are three Vinci brothers in total. Giovanni, 
Salvatore, and Francesco. They all hail from this small island of Sardinia, which is this rural, some might say backwards place, especially in the 1960s. They spoke in a language unique to the island, which is not understood by other Italians. So for the most part, they created their own society and operated by their own ethical code. If you know anything about the mafia, you might have heard the term omerta. It's the code of silence that governs the majority of Italian organized crime, which can basically be boiled down into family first and don't snitch. But the Sardinians have their own separate code called Valente, which is like the Omerta on steroids. It means that in the 50s and 60s, nobody looked down on criminals in Sardinia. If someone stole and got away with it, that just proved that the smarter person came out on top. Kidnapping? Murder? It was all kind of fair game. At some point, there was this mass migration of islanders to mainland Italy. And in 1961, the Vinci brothers hopped on a ferry and landed in Florence, where they stayed with other Sardinians while they found their footing, including Stefano Mele. And during their time together, the Vinci's, Stefano Mele, and his wife Barbara Locci got pretty close. Now, the Vinci's all dabbled in crime, but of the three, Francesco was probably the most outwardly criminal. Italians might call him a wise guy, but investigators don't pay that much attention to the Vinci brothers until 14 years later, after the monster of Florence has killed at least eight more people and after they find something hidden in the woods that belongs to one of the brothers. In June 1982, officials stumble on a car hidden on the Tuscan coast covered in leaves and branches. It's the day after a bunch of journalists published misleading articles about how one of the monster's victims survived long enough to give police valuable information, like maybe what kind of car he drove. Officials run the car's plates and learn it belongs to Francesco Vinci. But at the time, Francesco's rap sheet is only filled with petty crimes. Apart from his car being found in the woods, at the time when the monster might be on edge, there's nothing linking him to the murders, which would be a problem if the police cared about evidence, but they don't, so they arrest Francesco. Local papers all report that the monster has, once again, been caught. And once again, they're proven wrong when another couple dies 15 months later. This time, it's two German tourists. Both of them are art students on vacation, and both of them are actually men. Officials find them dead in a camper parked in the hills of Florence, riddled with gunshot wounds. The bullet casings found at the scene confirm it's the monster, even though he didn't mutilate any of their bodies. Some speculate the monster didn't know that he was spying on two men. I mean, apparently one of the victims had long blonde hair. But aside from that, investigators gleaned two important insights from the tragedy. First, the monster's probably at least 5'9", because that's the height of the window he shot through. And second, Francesco Vinci couldn't have done it because he's in jail. Now, you'd think that this is the part where Francesco Vinci gets released, but that's not what happens. 
The police keep him locked up because they're worried someone killed the tourist to intentionally exonerate him. After all, this murder didn't have all the same hallmarks of the other murders. So the police are like, maybe this is a trap. And they go after the whole Vinci clan. They arrest Francesco's nephew, Antonio, for possession of illegal firearms. They get a search warrant for his brother Giovanni's house where they find a scalpel, knives, a bunch of porn, rope in his car's trunk, and some weird notes on moon faces, which is obviously curious. They toss Giovanni in jail, and while they're at it, they throw Francesco's brother-in-law, Piero, in too, for good measure. They isolate each one in interrogation rooms, trying to get someone to talk. But it's no use. They're completely stonewalled by the Sardinian Balente until the police are finally like, fine, we'll release Antonio the nephew, but the rest of you stay in jail. And with Francesco, Giovanni, and Piero in custody, officials pray that one of them is the monster. They pretend to be really confident. A lead on the case gives a news interview saying, quote, Florentines can now rest easy. Of course, every person in Florence has heard this before, so nobody buys it, especially not the press, and especially not Mario Spezzi. Everyone's still scared out of their mind and a little sexually frustrated. All those popular parking spots in the hills are mostly empty now that getting lucky could get you killed. But that doesn't stop the monster from striking again in July 1984. The victims are Claudio Stefanacci and Pia Gilda Rontini. The crime scene is a replica of the rest, except the mutilation's worse. In addition to cutting out Pia's pubic area, the monster ripped off her left breast and took both body parts with him. Naturally, the city loses its mind again, and rightfully so. I mean, let's recap where we are in the mess. 14 people are dead. Five have been wrongfully imprisoned or convicted, three of whom are currently in jail. Dozens of investigators are working the case around the clock, and there's basically nothing to show for it. Naturally, the only thing that could make this worse is for another, different serial killer to strike. And that's what happens. Six female sex workers are found dead in quick succession. A few were tortured with knives. One had been put in a homemade straitjacket and made to swallow a piece of cloth until she suffocated. The murders are markedly different from the monsters, but people wonder if he's maybe changing things up, you know, trying to throw officials off his scent. Then, at one of the crime scenes, someone makes a connection. The apartment's water heater had recently been repaired by Quick House Repair, a company owned by Salvatore Vinci, as in the only Vinci brother who's not currently in jail. Investigators hadn't really looked too deeply into Salvatore's past. Of all the Vinci brothers, he seemed the most buttoned up, like soft-spoken, seemingly level-headed. But turns out, Salvatore's into some out-of-the-box stuff, especially for the time. 
Salvatore's a bisexual, orgy-loving, hate-filled sex fiend. And I don't say fiend because he's open-minded and enjoys pleasure. I mean, a good percentage of his sex life is basically the opposite of consensual. He likes surprising his girlfriends with threesomes. He would get women in bed and then turn on the lights and there would be another random man there. And if they didn't agree to have sex with that random man he surprised them with, then he would beat them into submission. Back in Sardinia in the 60s, Salvatore raped a woman named Barbarina, which led to her having a son, Antonio Vinci. They got married, but Not long after, Barbarina supposedly died by suicide, or at least that was the official ruling. Locals suspected Salvatore murdered her and made it look like suicide. When he moved to Florence, he begrudgingly took his son Antonio with him. And as I said earlier, shortly after landing, they stayed with Stefano Mele and his wife Barbara. You remember Barbara, the one who was killed in the 1968 double homicide. The police had charged Stefano with the murder because he shot the gun. They said Stefano must have killed her in a jealous rage. Well, it turns out that narrative really doesn't fit. Investigators learn that Barbara wasn't only having an affair with the man in the car that one night. She was having many affairs. At various points, she was also sleeping with Francesco and Salvatore Vinci. And Stefano more than knew about the affairs. He too was sleeping with Salvatore as well. Sometimes in groups, sometimes with Barbara, sometimes solo. Mario Spezzi confirms this in another visit to Stefano's halfway house. Stefano breaks down and tells him the truth about his relationship with Salvatore. It turns out Salvatore threatened to publicly out Stefano if he didn't take the fall for his wife's murder. Afraid of being perceived as anything other than straight, Stefano spent six years in jail for a murder he didn't commit. Later reconstruction of the crime suggests the actual killer handed Stefano the gun to shoot after both victims were already dead to intentionally frame him. But the worst part? Even after all this comes to light, officials can't find any evidence to put Salvatore in jail. So they start surveilling him 24-7. This goes on for months, but they don't find anything. The only good that comes of it is, as long as he's being tracked, there are no murders. But the moment the cops decide to take one night off, yep, two more people wind up dead in arguably the most terrifying murder yet. Now, at this point, signs are posted throughout Florence that refer to security risks and being careful after dark. But none mention a killer on the loose. Why? Well, the Italian economy relies on tourism, and they don't really want to discourage visitors. Which is why two French tourists are out camping in the middle of the woods in September 1985 without a care in the world. Jean-Michel Kravichvili and Nadine Moriot are relaxing in their tent under a new moon, probably having a little post-coital cuddle, when out of the blue, they hear a knife slicing through the vinyl in the outer layer of their tent. 
It's the monster letting them know they're not alone. By the time they open the front of the tent, the monster's already made his way around. The flap opens to him, standing there with a pistol, and he shoots. Nadine dies instantly. Four bullets hit Jean-Michel. One in the wrist, finger, elbow, and one grazes his lip. But Jean-Michel, he's a track athlete, and he specializes in the 100-meter dash. So injured but still alive, he sprints away as fast as he can. But he only makes it about 12 meters before the monster grabs him, stabs him, and cuts his throat. The monster then returns to Nadine, cuts out her pubic region, and tears off her left breast. Along with a postcard addressed with letters cut out from a magazine, he mails the flesh to a female prosecutor on the monster case, Sylvia Della Monica. And Sylvia immediately quits. After more than a decade on the case, knowing the monster can find her that easily is just too much for her to handle. And with that, the monster was apparently satisfied. To the best of anyone's knowledge, Nadine and Jean-Michel are the last victims of the monster of Florence. He never kills again. Now, you might be thinking, Salvatore Vinci is the monster. He has to be. Well, that's what the police think too. Some, at least. But without evidence to arrest him for the monster's crimes, they have to get creative. So they try to prosecute him for another crime, the murder of his wife, Barbarina, the one who, up to this point, supposedly died by suicide. They use Salvatore's son, Antonio, as a witness in the trial. Yes, for the prosecution. Antonio hates his father. He later tells officials that he would have, quote, strangled him if he had the chance. But Belente runs deep. When Antonio takes the stand, he just sits there, silently glaring at his father from behind sunglasses for hours. In the end, the jury acquits, an outcome nobody expects. Salvatore Vinci walks away, smugly telling reporters how satisfied he is with the result. After that, he disappears from the public eye, and to this day, nobody knows whether he's alive or dead. And so begins another chapter of the most expensive investigation in modern Italian history. At some point, investigators get an anonymous tip to check out this alcoholic farmer named Pietro Pacciani. He becomes a prime suspect when police find out he may be part of an Italian occult society, and they find some unusual art in his house. One painting looks satanic. It's of a distorted centaur with male and female sex organs, clown feet, and a skull instead of a head. He also has a replica of Botticelli's Primavera that shows this female nymph with flowers and vines in its mouth. It looks suspiciously like how the monster arranged one of his victims with a gold chain placed neatly between her lips. They also learn that Pachani is, in short, the scum of the earth. In the 50s, he found his girlfriend cheating on him with another man in a car. He killed the guy, raped his girlfriend next to the guy's dead body, then brought the man's corpse into the woods to molest. 
He told police his rage began when he saw his girlfriend undressing for another guy, and she revealed her, get this, left breast. Pachani was convicted for that crime and served time, but he was released before the monster's killing spree. On top of that, almost immediately after the monster's spree ended, he was imprisoned for beating, raping, and force-feeding dog food to his daughters. Now, there are inconsistencies. Pachani's much shorter than the monster is supposed to be. He clearly has displayed criminal sexual rage, but he's not impotent as the monster's psychological profile suggests he would be. And police never find the gun or any tokens the monster took from his victims. Ultimately, he's convicted in November 1994, but acquitted two years later for lack of evidence. Turns out he had a pretty solid alibi for the last double homicide. He was at a state fair. By 2006, officials are grasping at so many straws that they actually arrest Mario Spezzi as the monster suspect. Yes, the reporter who for decades had essentially been doing investigators' job better than they were, suddenly gets thrown into a cell. He's eventually released, and the officials who put him in there are indicted for abusing the powers of their office. Two more major accusations happen, one in 2008, another in 2017, but both are ultimately dismissed due to a lack of any evidence. And yet, no attention has seemingly been paid to the person who Mario Spezzi most suspected was the monster and still does to this day. The theory centers around a theft reported by Salvatore Vinci in May 1974. This would have been four months before the monster's killing spree took off. Spetsy suspects that the item stolen from Salvatore's house was the only item of value he owned, a 22 caliber Beretta pistol. The person who performed the theft? The same person who Spetsy learns once held a scuba knife to Salvatore's throat, his son, Antonio Vinci, who's presumably still alive. According to the FBI's psychological profile of the monster of Florence, he's likely to be carefully following the coverage of his crimes. Or maybe he's not just watching, he's evolving. In December 2020, four suitcases filled with dismembered body parts belonging to a man and a woman were found underneath an overpass right outside of Florence. The monster might finally be back, or maybe he never left. Thanks for listening. I'll be back next week with another story. And if you want to hear more, you can find all episodes of International Infamy for free on Spotify. International Infamy was co-created by Max Cutler and Ashley Flowers and is a Spotify original from ParCast starring Ashley Flowers. It's executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Carrie Murphy, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Aaron Larson. This episode of International Infamy was written by Connor Sampson, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher and Ali Wicker, fact-checking by Haley Milliken, and research by Chelsea Wood. To hear more stories hosted by me, check out Crime Junkie and all AudioChuck originals. Listener.